Thank you for listening to Overcomers Church International Weekly Message. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened as you hear the Word of God. All right, so we're going to talk about restoring discipleship and continue talking about it. Um, so I, I really started off with talking about the nature of a disciple, which I'm not going to go back into t- for time's sake, but basically the nature of a disciple is one who walks in humility, and you can see that, um, and you're going to see it even more today. And so we've got these different characteristics that the Lord has just revealed to me, and we could talk of probably about you know 50 characteristics of a disciple, but he really has highlighted three specific characteristics to me. I mentioned one, which was repentance. Um, I mentioned that first, I should say, and then I also talked about last week about continuing steadfastly was something that is a characteristic of a disciple. And I want to finish off there before I get into the third and final characteristic of a, dis- of a disciple. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. We're going to go there briefly, and I want to show you these, continue these four things because it says that the, they continued steadfastly, and it was in four things. And you're going to see that the attitude or the nature that is in the actions here all goes back to a disciple being one of humility. So again, we talked about repentance being a characteristic of a disciple, but then we also talked about that they continue steadfastly, which means they don't do it here and there and then quit, but a disciple is someone who continues steadfastly. And so it says in verse 42 of Acts 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I want to hit these four really quick and then show you how humility relates to them. They continued in the apostles' doctrine or teaching. And when you do that, when we do that, it says that I don't know everything. How many of y'all know that that's a place of humility? They come to a place in your life where you say, I don't know everything and I need people to teach me things. I need to sit underneath of the teaching of the word. I need to have people put input into me, even personally. And so that's a place of humility. The next thing there is fellowship. And this is where I ended last time, is fellowship, really just assembling together. And humility is involved in that because it says that I need others. I need others to speak into my life, but I also just need to have other people. I'm going to read this verse real quickly. Don't turn there, but in 1 John, and I might end up here later on, but in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. And so there's a connection there with walking in the light, being cleansed from sin, which is different than being forgiven of sin. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get there in just a little bit. Um, but there's a correlation there with us walking together in the light and walking in the, the freedom that God has for us. It, we're supposed to do that together. I find some of the most miserable people, miserable Christians are the ones who come into the church They get saved and then something happens and before you know it, they're outside of fellowship with people or the only people they're in fellowship with are ones that are in in rebellion. And whenever they hear a preacher say something like that, they they say, because I've heard all of these things, they'll say, well, you're just saying I'm in rebellion, which I'm not pointing to any person in particular, but we've all seen these people. You're just saying I'm in rebellion because you think I need to be sitting in the church listening to your messages. Yes, I do, I do actually think, think that because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it's important for us to hear the word. But even more than just sitting and hearing the word, we need to have that fellowship with people. And you need to have fellowship with people that can add strength to your life, not to sit on the sidelines and grumble about everything that the church is not. And so the most miserable people that I have found and in my days are Christians who know they're supposed to be connected with people, but refuse to be connected with people because of some offense 
We should never allow ourselves to get to that place. I told Liz and I decided this years ago, this was before we, we moved here, but we would never leave a group of people. We would never leave a church in offense. The only way we would ever leave the place that God had called us is when God tells us to leave. And we were in a situation where we were undergoing, uh, I don't want to say tremendous, but pretty good abuse. Uh, bad enough that Katie left because of what was happening to us, but we won't, we won't get into that. And, but Liz and I stayed because the Lord hadn't officially released us. And when we released ourselves, when he released us and we pulled ourselves away, we did it as right as we possibly could as to not cause any damage to that ministry or to those people. And that's how we're supposed to function and operate. But you know that very few people do that. You know why? This goes back to things that I've talked about recently, that people don't value covenant. I value covenant more than I do people's opinions or doctrine or, or anything like that. And so I, I actually, even with that particular situation I pulled myself out of, I still have good relationship with those people because I didn't, did it right. I didn't bash the pastor. I didn't bash the worship leader. I didn't do all of the things, even though and the pastor was not the one doing the bashing, but there were other people that were doing it towards Liz and I, and I didn't walk out of there and just bash them and lay into them. I've used them as examples unbeknownst to them in some of my teachings over the years, but I didn't call them out by name or anything like that. And so I, I walked away from there and kept my heart uh, right. And so, but anyways, going back to the point of this is that when we have fellowship with people, when we choose that, to take that time to invest into people and allow them to invest into us, it's a place of humility because it says that we need other people. And we also recognize that people need what we have. Amen. So there's the apostles doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, which is communion. And this communicates an attitude of humility because it says, I need the Lord's healing and forgiveness. So when we continue to partake of communion, and here's the thing about communion, I'm not going to take time to teach on this, but the thing about communion, which I'm going to teach for a second, but not for a long time is what I mean. The thing about communion is that culturally we take a, a you know, the, the, the cup with whatever we've got in it and we take the cracker or the piece of bread and we have a communion service or a time in the service where we take communion. Culturally, that's how we do it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's great power that's in it. We can attach our faith to it. We, re we recognize the shed blood of the Lord Jesus and the broken body, which is for the forgiveness of our sins and for the healing of our physical bodies. But culturally, what they did is that they would sit around a table together and the communion that they had was all around their conversation being about the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus. And they would take it and they would do what they were doing in their fellowship and in their eating. And they would do it in remembrance of him. Everything was revolved around him. So the truth is, is that when you have somebody over, we, wouldn't, we just don't think like this. And if you have somebody over for dinner... And you sit and glorify God and magnify God and you praise him and, and you encourage each other. That actually is communion. You have a common union and the thing that unifies you, the thing you have in common is the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus. So when we take communion, whether it be like that or culturally how we do it, we're remembering him, we're remembering what he's done and we're, we're acting in an attitude of humility that says that I need what the Lord has that I don't have it all myself, but I need what he's got and what he's provided for me. And also when you look at the idea of, of communion, it's broader than just thank you, Jesus, that I'm on my way to heaven, but it's a constant reminder of the full gospel of all of the things that the Lord has provided. I mean, I wish I had time to talk about this, but there's this word 
called Sozo in, in the New Testament. And it speaks about many times when it says that, that we're saved, for example, like that we're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, somewhere around there. That word saved is the Greek word sozo, and it actually means saved, like from hell. It means made whole, and it also makes reference to financial prosperity and to all kinds of things, just the fullness of everything that the Lord has done. So when we go back to communion and we recognize not just to shed blood for the nails in his hands and feet, but Jesus bled, I believe it was eight times total, the eighth time being when the spear was stuck in his side and the water and the blood flowed, which, rec which represents forgiveness of sins and cleansing from defilement, which hopefully I'll get into that as well too. But there were seven times that Jesus bled before that, and only one of them had to do with us going to heaven. The other six times had everything to do with us reaping the benefits of what he provided for us. And so many times we look at only the forgiveness of sin, and there's even a lot of people that say, I don't believe in the healing, it's not for us, or I don't believe in this, that, or the other. And I, I look at that and I think God's given us this tremendous gift. And for anybody to say that I only want part of it, that would be like you buying your kids you know, eight Christmas presents, and you give them eight Christmas presents at Christmas or birthday or whatever it is, and they say, you know, I just want the one. I don't want any of the rest of them. You'd be thinking, oh my gosh, I've got so much for you. I paid for these things, right? I took my time. I worked. I made money. I bought these gifts for you, and you don't even want them? I look at that, and I think it's the same thing with the Lord. And a lot of times people just don't have a revelation of it, but when we, when we don't recognize all that he's provided and what he's given, that's not an honor to him. And so when we go back and we partake of communion... And we break bread with each other. It reminds us that we're all on the same plane, that we all need Jesus. But it also reminds us of the fullness of everything that God has provided for us. Can I get an amen? And the last thing here, and then I'm going to move on, is that they continued steadfastly in prayer, and really prayer of all kinds. And this attitude of humility is shown here because it says that I need his wisdom and I need his guidance. I need God's help in my life. So many times I've found even for my own self that I... I've backed away at different times of really fervently staying in a place of prayer before the Lord. This is part of the reason why we are building, we're making a prayer room. And in, in June, I'm going to have a lot more for you on that. But this is part of the reason is that the church has to come back to a place of being on our knees before the Lord to say, God, we need your help. So many times people get saved and then they get stuck in this mode of like, thanks, I'm on my way to heaven. Now I'm going to live my life. Actually, the attitude of a disciple is that I don't have a life anymore. All of my life is now found in him. And when we come back to a place of consistent prayer before the Lord daily, we're, all, we're on our, our, if not literally on our knees, at least figuratively, we're on our knees saying, God, I need your help. I need to hear from you. I need your wisdom. I need your guidance. That's the attitude of what a disciple carries because they, they know that they need whatever God has. Amen. And so we have to remain in this attitude of prayer, and we need to steadfastly continue steadfastly in all these things, but especially in prayer that we keep that communication going with him. Amen. I'm going to move on to the next thing, and I, this is what I've been shooting for for six weeks, and I just had to work my way up to it, and I'm telling you, this is some of those powerful revelation that God has ever given me. And so the third thing here, let's turn over to John chapter 13, and the third characteristic that a disciple carries or walks in is that they wash themselves and they wash others, which might sound strange to you, but I tell you now, you get a hold of what I'm going to, 
I'm going to show you today. This is just absolutely awesome. So John chapter 13. I'm going to read, if I can get to it. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15. And then I'm going to come back and work my way up to it. So John chapter 13 and verse 14, it says, and this is right on the heels of Jesus washing their feet. And this is what I'm going to ask of you. I want you to open your mind up because most of us have either seen foot washing and have developed a picture of it, or we've just always had the idea of what foot, foot washing really meant. And when the Lord began to download some things to me out of this, I realized that I had viewed foot washing mostly wrong most of my life. And I'll get into that in a moment here. In verse 14, it says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, both of those words are extremely important. Teacher says that I'm sitting and I'm positioned before the Lord to where you can give me instruction. The Lord says, you're my master and I'll follow you and do anything that you want me to do. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And he was specifically talking about washing each other's feet. Now, we need to understand the significance of this. Jesus was giving really some of his final instructions to the disciples here. And if you think about the fact that he knew that he was getting, and we're going to read this, that, that his time had come and he was getting ready to go and be the sacrifice, and he was ultimately going to end up dying and then raising from the dead and leaving the earth. And if you, if you put yourself in the Lord's position, what would you want to tell the people that you're getting ready to leave? You could imagine that if you're going to tell them something, you're not going to talk about how great the Cardinal game was last night. Amen. You're going to tell them something that's really, really significant. Or the fact that the Blues are getting ready on Monday night to go into the Stanley Cup for the first time in 49 years. I knew that was going to get in there. I feel the Holy Ghost all over that one. Woo. All right. Help me, Jesus. Okay. Let's go back to verse 1 and look here. In John 13 and 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I, I don't want to preach here, but I really want to preach here. He loved them to the end. And you're, we're getting ready to read something here. This is why this is so significant. Jesus knew at this point when this was written, and it says that he loved them to the end, which I believe probably meant to the end of his life. He loved all of his disciples, the ones that, that belonged to him, that were with him, that walked with him. And yet he knew what Judas was getting ready to do to him. Now I want to stop here and, and think about this for a moment. Just let me see a show of hands. Who in here has had someone betray you before? Look around. Basically, every hand is up here. Do you know that when people, and that even the nature of betrayal is that you're close with someone and then they do something to come against that relationship and the trust gets broken and all of those things. So when people that you're not in covenant with hurt you, it doesn't hurt that bad. But when people you're in covenant with you hurt you, that's what hurts bad. Let me show you this in Isaiah. And I'm just going to read this really quickly and then I'm going to come back for time's sake. 
In Isaiah 55, this is David making reference to Absalom who had come against him. And this is what it says in verse 12 of Isaiah 55. It says, for, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I can hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. This is somebody that was close to David. And I fast forward and I look at this thing with Jesus. Jesus handpicked his disciples. He saw something in them that said, you're the one that I need to pass this ministry off to. You're the one that I need to reveal the kingdom of heaven to so that you can take it and you can multiply it in the earth. He brought him in. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, brought them in. And it says that Judas, we're getting ready to read, that it was already in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus, and if you look down to verse 11, it says, for he, speaking of Jesus, knew who would betray him. He already knew. And you know what it says right here? It says he loved them in verse one. He loved them to the end. And when we go on and read here, and we will, he washed all of their feet. He didn't leave Judas out. Man, that is awesome. Man, what kind of love would do that? What kind of love would have enough spiritual perception to know somebody is getting ready to stab you in the back and you go ahead and wash their feet anyways? You go ahead and love them anyways. Man, I'm telling you, that is powerful. There is nothing more powerful, more overcoming than the love of God. And it's not just the love that God has for us, but it's us understanding it and taking that love and giving it to other people. Man, that's powerful. All right, look here in verse two. It says, in supper being ended, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and lay aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Man, this is awesome. I want you to notice something. It says that he laid, there's not one thing in scripture that's there that's not there for a reason. Every single word that's in the Bible is there for a reason. And it says that he laid aside, in verse four, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments. You know what this represents? This represents, when you think about your clothes, your clothes represent you. We pick clothes out, nowadays especially, that we feel like represent who we are and what we like. But our clothes represent us. And you know, when it comes to serving other people, you listen to, to me, ministers and, and ones that are coming up in ministry. Any time that you go to minister to other people, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to lay aside whatever you want. You're going to have to lay aside your desires. You're going to have to lay aside what represents you, your life, if you're going to minister to other people. That's the reason that that was there, that he at least part of the reason why he laid his garments aside. I have never seen one person set free or preached a message or done anything great in ministry that it didn't cost me. 
You know, for a long time, I used to feel as the pastor, when I would see people come in and do ministry, and I would see it cost them, it would make me feel bad, like, man, it's, that's really costing them something. But you know what? That's just the nature of ministry. If you're going to reach people, you're going to touch people, it's going to cost you something. Ultimately, for Jesus, it cost him his life. Amen. Side nugget. But it says he rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Here's what you need to know about the water, is the water represents the word there's many places in the Bible that talk about the water being the word. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about this in verse 25 and 26. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. So when Jesus, he was painting a picture here that he went to wash their feet, what he was doing is that he was giving them the word. It was a picture of giving them the word. But I want you to notice something here. It says that in verse 6, that after he washed their feet or began to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Why would you wash somebody's feet? Not a trick question. Because they're dirty, right? So if Jesus is painting a picture here, which we're going to see more clearly as we continue to read if a picture is being painted here of him washing feet and it represents washing people with the water of the word, sometimes that's a little bit difficult when you have to approach people in the practical and say, this is what the word says. Let's clean this area of your life up, right? But I want you to notice that it, he, was, he girded himself with a towel. In, I, in Isaiah eleven five, it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. Do you know what this word for towel here is? It's linen. You know what linen represents in the Bible? It represents righteousness. So here's the picture of this. Whenever we go and we wash somebody, we clean them, we give them what they need, we bring the correction or whatever it is, we always wrap them in righteousness because that represents their identity. Whenever we have to deal with people according to their condition, which is what Jesus was talking about, we have to remember that even if their condition is dirty, they still have a position in Christ Jesus. So I've found this that anytime, and I believe in the sandwich technique, that when I have to go to somebody and say, hey, even with my own kids, and I don't always do it as good as I should, but even in my own kids, I'll go to them and I'll say, man, I love you. I appreciate you. And again, I don't always do that as well as I should, but that's my heart. And then I'll say, look, this needs to change. And here's the reason why. And so we need to do something different here. But then I'll go back and I'll remind them, I do love you and I care for you and I'm so glad you're a part of this family. When we're dealing with people, and you need to understand this about when it comes to washing people's feet and, and whatever that looks like, Jesus didn't wash the multitude's feet. He washed the disciples' feet. He had a relationship with them. Any kind of foot washing spiritually, because this is painting a picture, Right? of what's taking place spiritually. And he even goes on to say, he even goes on to say that what I'm doing now, Peter, you don't understand it, but you will understand it. And, and he, was, he was painting this picture. Whenever feet are being washed, it's very important that you come back at the end of it when you're dealing with people that you have a relationship with, you come back at the end of it and you remind them who they belong to. 
So when I minister to people and I deal with things and help people, I never thought that that bringing correction, loving correction would be such a part of ministry. I never, it asked me even two years ago, if I thought that correction would be a big part of ministry, I'd say no. It's actually, it's one of the biggest parts of ministry is being able to have a relationship with people and say, look, this is killing you. Let me, let me help you understand this a little bit better. But you know what I always do? I don't take washing people, washing their feet, giving them the word and beat them over the head with it and make them feel like they're condemned and they don't have a place in the body of Christ. You know what I do? I remind them you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Man, God loves you. There's a place for you in his kingdom. There's a place for you in this, this church. And then after I wash their feet, I come back and I wipe them off with the righteousness of God and remind them who they, who's they are and who they really belong to. Man, that's powerful. What a picture. I haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Let me keep reading. It says in verse six, then he said to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, then he came to Simon Peter, excuse me, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? People are embarrassed about their feet. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And it's because it's one of the dirtiest places on our, on our body. For me, it's got socks on and shoes on and guys that might work or whatever. They get all stinky and nasty and, and dirty. And you can imagine in those days that it was they were walking down the road and they had their sandals on or whatever. Their feet were gross. Imagine all of walking down the road and all of the, the donkeys and the horses and the camels pooping all over. And they probably stepped in that stuff. Their feet, their feet really were very gross. The perception that we've had over the years concerning foot washing is that it's humbling for the, pe- for the person t- doing the foot washing. But the truth is, it's more humbling for the person that's getting their foot washed. And remember, Jesus said, you don't know what I'm doing. Did I read that yet? I didn't read that yet. In verse 7, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing now, you don't understand now, but you will know after this. Now, Every one of these guys knew what it meant to wash feet. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, you don't understand the spiritual implications of what I'm doing right here. You know, I had a man that actually, the guy that married Liz and I, he um, performed our wedding. We only married each other, but um, he performed our wedding and we were in a small group one time and he was talking about foot washing. And this is where this first started to open up for me. And he, we were talking about foot washing, and he said, you know, the humility comes from the person that's getting their feet washed, not for the one doing it. And I, I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, I have, uh, he had something wrong with one of his toes, and he ended up taking his, his shoes off, and I mean, it was, it was pretty messed up looking. And he said, I had someone come and wash my feet one time because they wanted to honor me. And he said, it was the most humiliating thing that ever happened to me. Because he said, I had to pull my socks and shoes off and I had to bear my ugliness. See, it's not the person that's washing the feet that has to come to the highest level of humility. It's the person that's getting their feet washed that has to pull their socks and shoes off and bear their ugliness. I said something to Ron recently, just asking him, I said, what would you think? And I want to hear your answer. What would you think if I took your shoes off? 
we'll say after a hard day of pouring concrete, and I said, Ron, I want to wash your feet, what would you say to me? No way. I said that to you too, something about that to you, and what'd you say? No way, because your feet are embarrassing to you. My feet are embarrassing to me. I won't get in all the reasons why I'm battling a little something on my, <laughs> my feet. Just kind of said what it was, but anyways. It would be so embarrassing for me to take my socks and shoes off and have somebody wash my feet because it would reveal the thing that's hidden that's ugly. You see the picture that's being painted here? An attitude of disciple of a disciple is one who would allow themselves to come to a place to where they would allow somebody to wash their feet. Jesus wasn't trying to tell us we need to go do foot washings. And so I was telling someone recently about this and they said, oh man, you need to have a foot washing service. And I thought, well, we could do that, but I'm gonna have to literally embarrass people to do that. I don't think I wanna do that, but I do wanna paint the picture of what's really happening here. It's not humbling for the person to wash the feet, maybe a little bit, but it's humbling for the person that says, I'll take my socks and shoes off and let you see my ugliness. Mm. And remember at the end, Jesus said, I've done this to you and I've made an example. Do this to one another. So what was he saying when he said that? He was saying, wash each other's feet, but allow each other to wash your feet. Covenant. You don't bear your ugliness just to anybody. You bear your ugliness to people that you're in covenant with, that you can trust. And when we can come to a place to where spiritually we can say, you know what, I'm gonna let you inside and I'm gonna let you see my ugliness so you can help me get it cleaned up. And we can do that. There is, there is more power in a church like that than what, than what we have any clue. I believe that the Acts Church coming back into fullness, that this is part of the Acts Church coming back into fullness, that we come back to a place of humility and, and bear our souls to people we trust. You can't just bear it to anybody, but to people you trust that can help you and that can help clean you up. And I'm gonna show you why it's so important here. You all still with me? So in verse seven, he says, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you will know after this, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash, wash you, you have no part with me. I want you to notice Peter's actions. He said, you're not gonna wash my feet. What was he doing? He was not trusting the Lord. He was being a little bit, could we just say probably carnal or fleshy? And he was like, I don't want you to touch my feet, Lord. That's the picture that's being painted there. And then if you go on and you look and Jesus says, so he said, you won't have any part with me. In verse nine, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So he starts off saying, you ain't gonna touch any part of me. You ain't, you ain't gonna wash my feet. And then Jesus says, look, you can't have any part with me. And he's like, oh, oh, do it all. Jesus wasn't asking to do it all. He was just asking to wash his feet. But you see, that's what it looks like when people walk in the flesh is it's like it's always too far forward or too far back. Does that make sense? And you look at whenever he, he, uh, he denied Jesus, he said, oh, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. At the end of this chapter, he says that. I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. And I, and I was just thinking recently about the significance of that. He said the rooster crows because Jesus saw in the spirit at exactly where he would be whenever he denied, would deny him the third time. And it says that when he denied him, immediately the rooster crowed. So Peter went from, 
I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. And then he gets in front of three different people, one of them being a little girl. You know this man? I'm sure I've never seen him before. He's so back and forth. That's what the flesh looks like. Just a side note. But I want you to notice, he says, if you don't let me do this, you'll have no part with me. I've heard this mentioned kind of. No, I've heard this mentioned that this is talking about salvation. That if you don't come and you don't allow the Lord to wash you and cleanse you, that you won't be with him anymore. That's not what this is saying. First of all, when it comes to our salvation, it's about him in us, not us with him. Because this is talking about our walk, right? Because he's dealing with the feet. Look at what the next verse says. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean, and you are clean. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Because if you're bathed, you're already clean. What's he talking about? He's talking about the new birth. He's saying if you've been born again, if you've been bathed, you don't need to come back and get another bath. This isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about us walking through life and dealing with the issues and the junk of our life and allowing God and allowing people to come in and wash the things off that need to be washed off. Because he says, he who's been bathed needs only to wash his feet for he's completely clean. This is an issue of righteousness. This isn't an issue of you being right with God, this is an issue of not allowing the devil to have access to us. You know why? Because back in the garden, it says to the devil that it, the Lord spoke to the devil and he said, you'll eat the dust of the ground. Why were their feet dirty? Because they were walking and they had dust, they had dirt from the ground on their feet. Dust is the devil's food. And when we walk through life, and we don't allow the Lord to deal with the stuff that we've been walking through, we open ourselves up to the enemy to have access and wreak havoc in our life. Now, I want to tell you something. There's a difference between sinning and being defiled. And I'll give you an example of this. I think I probably have shared this before, but it fits good here. I'm going to, I'm going to share this. We, Liz and I, when we went out on Valentine's Day, <clears throat> we went to a restaurant. And when we left there, I, I told her, which we went with some friends, and it wasn't the friends, but it was everybody else. But I told her, I said, there was a lot of, I think I probably said something a little more straightforward than this, but I'll just say this. There was a lot of cleavage in there. And I said, there's a lot of short skirts in there too. See, look, I heard Jesse DePlanet say one time, he said, he said, men, if you ever are struggling, he said, just tell your wife about it, boom, it'll deal with it right there. And I wasn't struggling, but I've learned this. And from men, and this is an example in this way, and every man can relate to this in here. When you see those things, you have a choice whether you're going to act on those things or not. I didn't act in sin. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't meditated. I hadn't fantasized. I hadn't done anything. But what I did recognize is that my eyes, every which way I looked in the doggone restaurant, kept beholding things that I didn't want to behold. And you know what happened? My feet got dirty. I got defiled. 
And so I got on the van on the way home, and I told my foot washing partner, I saw a lot of stuff in there. I saw how beautiful you looked, but anytime I looked somewhere else, I, I saw other things. And so you know what I began to do? I began to speak the word over my mind. Father, I thank you that I have the mind of Christ. I thank you that I'm a pure man, that I think about my wife and I don't think about anything else like that. And Father, I thank you that those images are erased from my mind and, and they're not gonna pop back up again. That's me washing my feet from walking through the defilement of the world. And if I hadn't have done that, and I don't continue to do that in that way and so many other ways, what happens is you give the enemy something to feast on in your life. That is so powerful. Remember the whole spear in the side thing, right, with Jesus? And it says that the water and the blood flowed. And I know I said this already, but I want, I want to go to the, in this a little bit more. The blood, when the blood flowed, it, it represented the forgiveness of sin. And when your sin gets forgiven, it's past present and future tense. I don't have time to teach on that right now. Go and read Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 and study it and you'll be convinced. It, it is a full-blown deal that God has forgiven you of sin. But there is a big difference between getting it under the blood in terms of forgiveness and being right with the Lord and having the cleansing, continual cleansing and washing in the water of the word that keeps you spotless from the world. And see, you can, you can go because Jesus said, once you've been bathed, you only need to wash your feet. You can go through this life and you can never wash your feet and you'll go to heaven. You'll just probably get there quicker. Or you'll probably just live hellacious here because you're not allowing the washing of the water of the word to wash the stuff off out of your life that needs to be washed up. Does this make sense? Let's go over to 1 John, and we're going to come back here because I'm not done yet. Let's go over to 1 John in chapter 1, and look here in verse 5. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, and I read this earlier, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This isn't talking about forgiveness. This is talking about dealing with the issues that come up in our life. Amen? Look at what the next couple of verses say here. It says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive, our, deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, one of the most misrepresented verses in the whole Bible, in my opinion, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the difference between forgiveness and cleansing there. I had a lady leave the church one time because, and I probably didn't teach it very well. I know it better now, and this has been years ago. But I mentioned this verse, and I said that this isn't talking about us having to confess every single sin in order to be right with God. And she said, oh, no, you got to, and she met with me privately, and she did it right. But she said, you, you, we got to confess all of our sin if we're going to stay right with the Lord. So then 
Anybody that believes that has now taken the responsibility of forgiveness and eternal redemption and placed it back on the person remembering all of the sin that they could ever do and confess it before the Lord to get it under the blood. If you think that you know everything wrong that you do, you're kidding yourself. We do and think and act wrong in so many different ways that if we don't have the blood of Jesus cover us from the time we get born again until we die, we are up a creek. We have to have that confidence, that blessed assurance that we have in him, that it's done and it is paid for. It's a done deal. But you know where there's a danger at in this? Is that some people will say, well, since it is under the blood, we don't have to go back and confess it. If you want to walk cleansed, you do have to go back and confess it. Because cleansing is acknowledging something that is going on or has gone on and just saying, Lord, at least things that you know of, Lord, I don't want to walk that way. I want to take the word and the truth and I want to wash the feet, my feet and the dirt off of my feet and deal with the issues so that I can walk free from those things. Does that make sense? There's a reason why he talks about cleansing from sin and justifying us and forgiving our sins. And I would say to you that this 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would say that probably this verse is painting more and looking more towards his faithfulness than it is our ability to confess wrongdoing. And it has to be. Because if, again, if our forgiveness is dependent on us confessing, and some people say, well, you just have to confess, you know, the things that you know. That's not the way it works. In James, it says that if you're guilty of breaking the law, any part of it, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. The best analogy I've ever heard is the window analogy. You have a window, one of those big windows out there. You can't break part of the window, Right? You shoot a BB through it. You could drive a car through it. Either way, you've broken the window. And the only way to fix that window is to take it out and replace the entire window. So when it comes to big sin or little sin, it's either under the blood or we're in trouble. Some people say, well, they, they did this, that, or the other. Man, they're really probably not right with God. Wait, did they get born again? Well, yeah, but, but nothing. When you get born again, God changes you from the inside out. And you don't have to continue trying to change yourself from the outside in because it doesn't work. You can't become right with him based on your actions. You can only become right with him based off of putting your trust in the finished work of the cross. And if you understand that, you'll just be totally set free. And people that don't understand grace, they'll hear that and go, oh, you're too, giving people a license to sin. No, because if you understand the scriptures properly, especially John chapter 13, that we're supposed to go and wash our feet to keep us from sinning. And it's, in fact, it's the grace of God that's empowered us to live free from sin, not to continue in it. But there has to be a balance here to we, where we understand that we can come to the Lord not because we've got all of our sin confessed. We can come to the Lord because Jesus has dealt with the sin issue. And we come to him with a humble, repentant heart, recognizing, yeah, we because it says here, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself and you're a liar. 
Anyone that would say that I don't sin anymore, you're a liar. <laughs> and you're just deceiving yourself. So to, so to be at this place, can you see the balance here to where we ha- this is about bringing stability in our life. To where we can go, you know what? I am totally 100% right with God because of what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus. And at the same time, we can say, Lord, you know my thoughts, you know my actions, you know my issues, you know the pride, you know whatever it is that's going on there. You know the things that I haven't been willing to lay down. And so, Lord, I'm going to keep myself humbly before you, knowing that this, this man is being renewed day by day, even though this man, the one on the inside, has been totally made right with Jesus. You say, well, I don't know if it's totally been made right. It says in Ephesians 4 and 24, put on the new man, which was, was created in righteousness and true holiness. The new man on the inside, totally right with God. But the outward part of us is being renewed day by day if we'll allow the Lord to continue to renew our minds and change us and cleanse us in that way. Makes sense? See, this, is, this to me is like so freeing because it's the balance. Because you, you either have people going to one extreme or the other. Either we're forgiven and it doesn't matter what you do. Or anything you do wrong, boy, you better, you better just hope that God lets you in. And, and, and neither one are really right. I mean, it is right in the sense that we've been made right with God and our actions don't change that. But to just live a life that says it doesn't matter what I do, you're the devil's food. He's going to, like Brother Andrew would always say, he's going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. <laughs> Go back here to John 13. Is this hitting home with anybody at all? In verse 11, it says, or the end of verse 10, it says, uh, and you are clean, but not all of you. And of course, he's referring to Judas. He says, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. He was saying Judas wasn't. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know what he's saying here? Allow other people to wash your feet. Continue in that pattern. That's a really powerful revelation when you sit and think about that. This is some of the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples. Wash one another's feet. You would have thought that he would have said, go in power. Now, there were other things that he said after this. This wasn't the last thing. But, I mean, if I were Jesus, I would have done things a lot different. <laughs> Praise God, I ain't Jesus, amen. Just in case anyone was confused about that. <laughs> but, I mean, he said, he basically would say, look, humble yourselves. Stay in an attitude of humility and allow, allow each other to minister to each other. Allow people into your life. Because see, this goes back to the fact that Jesus was close with these disciples. And he said, and they had become close. He said, do this to one another. You know, it's impossible for us to wash someone else's feet if we're not, or someone to wash our feet if we're not willing to take off our socks and shoes and expose it to them. You know that that is one of the hardest things to do. And you know why? There are two main things that we have come to understand, that I've come to understand, that keep people from allowing other people to speak into their life and bring healing to them, it's two things. It's pride and it's shame. 
Shame says it's too hurtful and it's too embarrassing that I don't want to reveal it. And pride says, I really don't need anybody to touch that area of my life. I really don't need the Lord to minister to me in that way. And both will keep the power of God from flowing in our life like it needs to. Man, it's powerful. Thank you for listening to the weekly message. To find out more about Overcomers Church International and to hear more messages like this one, please visit our website at ociperryville.com.